Last spring, we reported on the 1993 murder of a young woman named Trisha Picaccio. Now, because of that broadcast, we can report there has finally been a breakthrough for a family that has been waiting nearly two decades for justice. The murder happened here in the middle of the night. Someone jumped out of the bushes and stabbed 18-year-old Trisha Picaccio to death. I was the one who found her. I woke up and I had a cup of coffee and I was going out to my van. And I just happened to see two little tennis shoes sticking up by the side door. And when I saw it was her, I dropped the coffee cup. I remember just waking up to this blood-curling scream of my father. Just the second I heard it, I knew something was very badly wrong. I was a first responder to the scene back on 1993. I walked to the south side of the home, and that's where I saw the victim lying on the ground near the garage. She had a lot of blood on her shirt or her blouse. At that time, I was guessing she was stabbed numerous times. I died. My daughter Trisha was murdered when she was 18 years old. Trisha was an amazing girl. Was probably one of the most energetic and happy people I've ever seen. She loved everybody and everything. She trusted everybody. She had a great attitude about everything. And she knew what she wanted out of life. Everybody was beside themselves, like who? And, and why would anybody do something like this? The Cook County Sheriff did their investigation. They had approximately 15 suspects they were looking at early on. A friend of the victim's two brothers was our immediate suspect. Mike Darjula is a very powerful young man, and he flat refused to cooperate with the police. The state's attorney's office, they wanted more than we had at that time. Mike Gargiulo went to California to get out of the scrutiny that had been focused on him here in Illinois. Hollywood Hills, 2001. A 22-year-old believed to be actor Ashton Kutcher's girlfriend is stabbed to death. They were going to be hanging out, going to a Grammy party. The injuries that she suffered were horrific. Probably one of the worst I've seen. 2005, a 32-year-old woman is stabbed in her home. There was slashing and cutting. There were multiple stab wounds, not just a couple. Santa Monica, April 2008. A young woman is woken up by a man attacking her with a knife. She was stabbed multiple times in her chest and shoulder and, and right arm. Trisha greatly resembled uh, the other victims here in California. They were all young, they were all attractive, they were all female. I feel with what we know today, between Illinois and California, Michael Gargiulo may be a serial killer. This program contains graphic material, including offensive language. Viewer discretion is advised. Hollywood, 2001. Eight years and thousands of miles from the scene of Trisha Picaccio's murder. Its bright lights have always attracted the young and the beautiful. 
and 22-year-old Ashley Ellerin was no exception. For this small-town girl from Northern California, life in Hollywood was a whirlwind of work, friends, and fun. She was amazing. Amazing. She liked to have fun? Absolutely. She liked to have fun. We had a lot of fun. At the center of Ashley's world was a core group of close friends, Justin Peterson, Jennifer DeSisto, and Chris Duran. She was just beautiful and, and fun and spontaneous. Really, the connection between this big group of friends was kind of partying and having a great time. Very free-spirited lifestyle. Yeah. Right. And they were young. They were young. Ashley spent her days as a student at the Los Angeles Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. And what were her goals and dreams at that point in her life? I think it was basically, you know, to get into the fashion industry. But out at night with her friends, Ashley found herself catching the attention of some of Hollywood's rising young stars, including a 23-year-old Ashton Kutcher. We had hung out with them a couple of times. They had, like, you know, maybe gone out on a couple of dates or whatever. Hollywood is Hollywood. Interacting with celebrities, that is how it is. I mean, they live here. So when Kutcher asked Ashley out for the night of February 21st, 2001, no one thought much of it. I knew they were going to be hanging out, going to a Grammy party. It was Grammy night. Right? Yeah, it was right. Grammy night. He was just, I thought, picking her up to take her. Yeah, he was just he was picking her up that to take her to a party. Kutcher arrived around 10.45 that night, but Ashley never answered her door. According to police interviews, before he left, Kutcher looked in the windows and saw what he thought was spilled wine on the floor. As it turned out, it wasn't wine at all. The body of 22-year-old Ashley Lauren Ellerin was found by her roommate early Thursday morning. Police say the stabbing happened Wednesday night. I remember it like it was yesterday. I entered the house. There was two steps to the left here, and Ashley was laying across the two stairs. Absolutely uh, blue and covered in blood. A sense of trauma just came over me. I thought maybe the person was still there, and I kind of ran out. Ended up getting to the car and calling from my cell phone, 911. It still traumatizes me to this day. Ashley Ellerin was just everybody's daughter. Living life and having fun. She winds up meeting somebody who's the wrong person and lost her life over it. Do you want to take a ride with me uh, out to the scene? Los Angeles Police Department homicide detective Tom Small, working out of the Hollywood division, was one of the first on the scene that morning. This is 1911 Pinehurst Road, and this is Ashley Ellerin's uh, former residence. Even now, 10 years later, Detective Small has no trouble remembering what he found inside that house. I observed quite a large amount of blood, and not too short uh, distance was Ashley's body. A lot of anger. A lot of rage. Somebody had isolated Ashley Ellerin to, to kill her and was very, very angry when he did it. It just was a very bad scene. Probably, the, probably one of the worst I've seen. But what surprised the seasoned investigator even more was what he didn't see. 
any evidence that would point to a killer. You know, we were just looking for any type of direction or clues that would uh, to lead to a suspect. It was Ashley's friends that gave detectives that first and only clue, pointing them to a young man Ashley had met in the neighborhood months earlier. The information we have is that he introduced himself as a heating and air guy. Ultimately uh, got some additional information. I was able to come up with some photos and, and identify him as Michael Thomas Gargiulo. We had heater problems, so he came in, you know, we sat there, we looked at the heater, and he started telling us all the crazy stories that, you know, he was a um, professional boxer. In fact, Michael Gargiulo did have a short career as an amateur boxer. But when he first arrived in Hollywood in 1998, like countless others, he had a different dream in mind. Your name? Mike Gargiulo. This was in 1999. I was a film student at USC. Los Angeles filmmaker Temple Brown gave Gargiulo a small role as a boxer in his graduate thesis film. I think he was perfect for that part. He looked it and he performed it very well. Gargiulo fit the role of a boxer to a T. But when the camera stopped, there was something odd about him. I think he was sort of withdrawn, maybe somewhat shy even. Just kind of very quiet and I would say kind of kept to himself, didn't really talk a whole lot. And it was that same manner that began to give Ashley and her friends pause as well. Did he ever ask her out on a date? Not that I remember I her ever saying. Never made a play for her? Or... No. It doesn't seem like he was obsessed with her in a, a sexual way, like I want right. you. He was just right. obsessed with a maybe a lifestyle or her being... Fixated? Mm -hmm. Just fixated. There was one occasion when he was observed sitting in a vehicle. And it was early in the morning. The engine was running and he was just looking in the direction of Ashley's house, just sitting there. I was walking and then found him sitting in his car at the end of the street with the motor running. And I went in and I, I just remember keep calling Ashley, going, where did you find this guy? This is very odd. Why is this guy in front of our house at 2, 3 in the morning? Justin confronted him the next day when Gargiulo dropped by for a visit. I said, what the hell were you doing in front of my house at 2, 3 in the morning? He started to go on about how the fact that he couldn't go home last night because the FBI was waiting for him at his home to collect DNA samples from Chicago. Some murder, his best friend's girlfriend was murdered or whatever. And I said, well, what, what do you have to hide? He uh, immediately put his leg up on the couch and started to pull out a knife that was like, you know, strapped to his ankle here. And what are you thinking? This guy's telling me that, that he might point, be involved with the at murder. At that point, I, I rushed him out of the house. Dude, get out of my house. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Ashley and her friends dismissed Gargiulo's story as an unlikely fantasy. But what no one realized at the time, it was true. Besides being an aspiring actor, a boxer and a repairman, Michael Gargiulo was also the prime suspect in the investigation of the murder of Trisha Picaccio. You believe Michael Gargiulo killed your sister? Absolutely.
I just remember just waking up to this blood-curling scream of my father. And it was, Doug, call 911, Doug, call 911. It happened over 18 years ago. But to this day, Doug Picaccio is still haunted by the moment he found out his sister Tricia had been savagely murdered. I don't really want to describe the details of, of what I saw. I have nightmares about it all the time. Years later, while investigating Ashley Ellerin's murder, California detectives were surprised to learn their number one suspect, Michael Gargiulo, was closely connected to another murder back in his hometown of Glenview, Illinois. I think that Trisha was the first. Like any high school girl, she was boy crazy. We all were. <laughs> we talk about boys for hours. We had a wonderful time in high school. Karen Jones will never forget the last time she was with Trisha. It was an unusually cool and foggy August night, Friday the 13th, 1993. That night, a whole group of us got together for a scavenger hunt party, and we all had dinner at a restaurant for one of the final parties of the summer before we all went off to college. Trisha got home sometime after 1 a.m. With keys in hand, she went to the side of the house to let herself in. She never made it. The next morning, Trisha's father, Rick, was going out to his van. I tried to revive her. That is the worst feeling in your life, when you can't do nothing for somebody you love. Trisha's mother, Diane, was at work. And I just left work and jumped in the car and came home, and I don't remember anything else. She had a lot of blood on her shirt or her blouse. Ray Saleyevich was the first uniformed police officer on the scene. I was guessing she was stabbed numerous times. When I heard a lady screaming, and I turned and looked because I was still in the front yard, and the mother is running towards Trish. And I basically tackled her, and I didn't want her to see Trish like this and remember her daughter like that. Homicide detectives from Cook County Sheriff's Department quickly took over the crime scene. The crime scene back then, I thought it could have been handled a lot better, taped off more. You think there were mistakes made that day? Yes. That hindered the investigation? I think the crime scene should have been handled a lot better, more secured, yes. While investigators were trying to secure the scene, one young neighbor was paying close attention. 17-year-old Mike Gargiulo. I called him. I'm like, hey, what's going on? He's like, I know it's crazy. He goes, yeah, I went over there. He goes, you couldn't miss all the sirens and everything, all the commotion. Scott Olson was childhood friends with Gargiulo. What was Mike's reaction to all this? It was equal to mine. Just shock, complete and total shock. It seemed totally appropriate to you at the Absolutely. time. Absolutely. I met Mike through Doug Picasso. <laughs> he grew up in their house. He ate at their dinner table. Just two days before her murder, Olsen and Gargiulo had given Trisha a ride to her boyfriend's house. We just drove her. She wasn't in the car very long. She got out, and that was the last time, I guess, we saw her. And did they have any kind of relationship? The same as it was with me. You're just like, my little brother's friend. You're my little brother's friend. I don't have to talk to you. Yes. Scott Olsen says there were two sides to Michael Gargiulo. One side was an awkward, insecure teen. The other side of Mike was he had what I call a crazy switch, where if he really wanted something and he was going to get it one way or another, and he flipped the switch. All emotions, gone. 
Yet nothing about Gargiulo gave the Picaccios cause for suspicion. I knew him to be very quiet, one of the guys that were in the back. He was never loud or boisterous whatsoever. You never saw him display any aggressive or uh, no. physical violent behavior? No, I no. can't say that. Was he friends with Trisha? No. 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 But starting about a year after Trisha's death, Gargiulo began drawing attention to himself with some strange behavior. It first started with he the flower. flower. He brought the end flowers. I'm like, why is Michael bringing us? It was live greenery. At Easter time, he brought us a lily. He brought us a dinner certificate to a restaurant. And then he even brought him a shirt. So it's like, wait a minute, nobody else was... Giving gifts dinner, and I said to him, why thing. is Michael we, we, giving us all of this stuff? And, and we people, were telling the, the detectives at the time what was going on. It was enough for Cook County Sheriff's detectives Jack Reed and Mark Baldwin to take a closer look at Michael Gargiulo. One of the psychologists that was talking to us says he's trying to expiate his sin. He's trying to atone for his crime with the presents that he was giving the family. The detectives discovered Gargiulo had a criminal record having once been arrested for theft. Then, Doug Picaccio told them about a curious conversation he once had with Mike. And he looked at me and he said, if you knew who did this, would you kill them or could you kill them? I said, well, what do you think? Ask any father, any brother, anybody. I think you know the answer. The police called me later on, J Detective Jack Reed, and said, do you realize that Michael Gargiulo called us and told us that you threatened him? He knew how to play the system, okay? He knew the heat was on. And it seems that Gargiulo wasn't shy about pointing the finger at his friends. When we were finally able to compel Mike Gargiulo to talk to us, he was aware that we had shown some interest in one of his good friends, Eric Agassim. She was the nicest girl I've ever known. Eric Agassim was another kid from the neighborhood and a close friend of Gargiulo and Doug Picaccio but not so close that Gargiulo wouldn't give him up to the detectives. He attempted at that time to lay all the suspicion on his doorstep by telling us that the morning after the murder, Eric came to his home and asked him to come along so he could hide something, a gym bag. We asked Mike Gargiulo what was inside the bag. I have no idea. Maybe, but the detectives say Gargiulo strongly implied it contained the murder weapon. A knife. Did you get a feeling that he was intentionally steering you towards Eric? He did. Gargiulo's story worked. When Agassim refused to talk with police, Agassim then became their number one suspect. But police were unable to develop any real evidence against Agassim, Gargiulo, or any other suspect for that matter. Eventually, the Trisha Picaccio case went cold. Then, one afternoon, five years after Trisha's murder, Michael Gargiulo showed up here on the Picaccio's doorstep. And what he did next convinced Trisha's parents that he had murdered their daughter. And Michael showed up at that door, and he says, I need to talk to Rick. And I said, well, he's at work, Michael. And he said, well, can I wait for him? I said, yes. He sat and waited for an, over an hour for him to come home from work, sat at my kitchen table. I remember walking in the garage door, and I looked at him. He, he had this look on his face like he was going to say something to me. The garage door opens, his father and one of his sisters come in and say, we have to leave, Michael. And they picked him up and whisked hey. him out. You believe 
that was the moment that you started to think Michael Gargiulo oh, no may have had something it. to no do with that? No doubt about it. Rick Boccaccio called the sheriff's detectives to tell them Gargiulo was their man. But it was too late. Mike Gargiulo went to California to get out of the scrutiny here in Illinois. Gargiulo left Chicago, he may have thought he was leaving the murder of Trisha Picaccio behind, but wherever Gargiulo went, it seemed that another dead body was just around the corner. And where was Gargiulo's apartment located? Um, if you turn around and look, it's right over your right shoulder. It's apartment number 34. In 2005, 12 years after Trisha's death and four years after the murder of Ashley Ellerin, Gargiulo was living in the Los Angeles suburb of El Monte. By this time, the Ellerin case had gone cold. But in a frightening coincidence, another young woman was found dead in her apartment just steps away from where Gargiulo lived. Uh, this is a building where the murder happened behind me in apartment number 20 is where Maria Bruno lived. So he kind of has a pretty clear shot if he's looking through the window right down to her place. He has a very clear shot at her front door and both living room window and the kitchen window. Homicide detective Mark Lillyfield with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department was assigned to investigate the murder of 32-year-old Maria Bruno. Can you tell me who Maria Bruno was? Uh, she was a mother and a wife and a daughter and a sister. I mean, she was all of those things. She had come to this country from El Salvador as a, an adolescent. She met and married her husband when she was a young woman. She had uh, two-year-old twins and then I believe a four-year-old and a five-year-old. Recently separated from her husband, who kept custody of their children, Bruno was just getting her new life started. What do you suspect happened? A screen was removed from a, a ground floor kitchen window. It appears from the evidence that he obtained a weapon there in the kitchen and that he then uh, entered into her bedroom where she was asleep. We're talking about a 90-pound 32-year-old woman, defenseless, asleep in her bed in her home where if there's any one place in the world she should feel most secure, that attack is every woman's nightmare. In fact, it was a seasoned detective's worst nightmare as well. It was unlike any other scene actually I had ever seen. The violence that was visited upon her, if that's the right way to say it, was phenomenal. After she was dead, her body was somewhat mutilated. And you just, you know, that's, that's crap you see in the movies. In real life, that, that is very rare. It just doesn't happen. Like Ashley Ellerin, Maria Bruno seemed to have no enemies that would do her this kind of harm. In your opinion, it looked like she was killed just to be killed. Yes, it was a bit of a puzzle. I mean, we were able to eliminate burglary or robbery, and relatively quickly we were able to eliminate sexual assault as being a motive. But unlike the Ellerin case, this time the assailant left something behind. Outside of uh, Miss Bruno's apartment was a, a blue cotton booty, like a shoe covering. Actually, on the sole of the booty was a drop of blood, and DNA testing proved that, in fact, it was Maria's blood on the drop of the booty. It was a clue, but it was also a dead end. No other evidence was discovered. How difficult did you think it was going to be to find this woman's killer? I, I knew we would have a challenge ahead of us. I, I knew it was going to be a difficult case. 
what Detective Lilyfield didn't know at the time was for investigators to finally solve the murders of Maria Bruno and Ashley Ellerin, another woman would have to come face to face with a killer. In 2008, in Santa Monica, California, one woman did just that and survived. I got the call at about 12:30 uh, in the morning. They asked me to come out and. Uh, respond to a uh, scene of a stabbing or attempted murder had occurred. Santa Monica Police Sergeant Richard Lewis was one of the first on the scene to question the victim, whose identity we have been asked to protect. What can you tell us about her? Uh, she's an incredible young lady, um, single at the time, and uh, just someone who's very resilient and uh, decided to fight. Sergeant Lewis's account of what investigators believe happened that night has a remarkably familiar ring to it. Uh, it's our belief that around 11.40 in the evening, um, he gained access into this window, which was open a few inches. And once he got inside there, he then opens the front door, kind of stages it as an escape route, um, proceeds into the bedroom where she's sleeping, and what awakes her is a knife being plunged into her. He just flat out stabbed her. Right. She was stabbed multiple times uh, in her chest and shoulder and, and right arm. Suffered several wounds to both of her hands as she's grabbing this knife as it's being plunged down upon her, uh, where those wounds all required surgery. And at some point there's a, a lull in the action, so to speak, and uh, she was able to get her feet up and kick him off of her. Um, and that's where he then uh, took off running and left the location. Did he say anything to her ever? Uh, I'm sorry. He said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So he comes out the door and there's blood uh, on the steps right outside the front door? We have some blood on the steps. Okay. And then blood on the concrete steps here leading out down this walkway and into the alley. Investigators followed the blood out to the street where the trail ended, leading them to believe that the attacker was long gone. So how significant in your investigation and when you showed up that night did you think that blood was going to be? Huge. Huge. About 25 days after uh, submitting my samples to the crime lab, um, I'm informed by a uh, criminalist that uh, we actually have a hit, a DNA hit, um, a profile that was determined. I did get a match. And who does it match? Michael Gargiulo. Conclusively? Yes. And what did you think? I said, I've got my guy. 24 hours later, Michael Gargiulo was arrested and charged with attempted murder. What stunned detectives was where they found he had been living, directly across the alley from the woman he had allegedly attacked. It would be the second building down in the uh, first window. It would be just above that black trash can that you see on the left side. He could see right into her bedroom? If she were to have the blinds open, that would be correct. That's pretty scary. Yes, absolutely. Gargiulo's arrest was only the beginning. Sergeant Lewis's investigation would finally connect a remarkable collection of cold cases going back 15 years. Apparently, Michael Gargiulo wasn't very surprised when Sergeant Richard Lewis arrested him for attempted murder on the night of June 6, 2008. His response once he was put into the police car to be taken to the station for booking um, was, which agency is this? What did that say to you? That tells me a lot. It tells me that uh, he wasn't sure of which crime he's getting charged for. 
It wasn't such an unreasonable question, considering that Lewis had found Gargiulo's DNA in the National DNA Database. It had been filed there by Cook County authorities. My first thing is to call Chicago and find out why is he in the database. And what did they tell you? They said it's because he's suspected of a murder. With that one phone call, the dominoes in the case against Gargiulo began to fall. Lewis learned that back in 2002, Cook County detectives had asked the Los Angeles Police Department for help, collecting a sample of Gargiulo's DNA for the Trisha Picaccio murder. All of a sudden we get a phone call. Cook County's in town and uh, they wanted some assistance on an investigation. Purely by chance, the Chicago investigators had turned to LAPD detective Tom Small, who happened to be investigating Gargiulo for the murder of Ashley Ellerin at the time. It's an extraordinary coincidence that they happened to call you at the exact same time you were looking at the same individual. Absolutely. Uh, it was just a, a, I don't know, stroke of luck. It took Small more than a year to find the elusive repairman and collect his DNA for the Picaccio case. Five years later, that very same sample would help Sergeant Lewis the blood started on the stairs. tie Gargiulo to the attack in Santa Monica. That also wasn't the end of it. No, that wasn't the end of it. Next, Lewis called Detective Mark Lilyfield on a hunch that the attack in Santa Monica might be related to the murder of Maria Bruno. I'm all of a sudden looking at, oh, wow, this is very, very similar. And so Lilyfield returned to El Monte to search Gargiulo's old apartment. And sure enough, in the attic of the apartment, we wound up finding a matching booty, a blue cotton booty just like the same one that we had found at the crime scene, the same manufacturer, the same make, the same model of booty. Finally catching the break they needed, Detectives Small and Lilyfield were both convinced they had found their killer. We were able to submit our cases to the district attorney here in Los Angeles, who felt there was sufficient evidence to go ahead and charge Mr. Gargiulo. On September 4, 2008, while already in jail for the attack in Santa Monica, Michael Gargiulo was indicted on two additional charges, this time for the murders of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno. We got ourselves a serial killer. No question in your mind? Not in my mind, no. Even with Gargiulo behind bars, California investigators were puzzled by one question. Why hadn't Cook County arrested Gargiulo for the murder of Trisha Picaccio years earlier? It's a no-brainer. If he were in custody for another matter, um, he wouldn't have been free to harm anybody. In fact, Cook County did have evidence that could have put Gargiulo in custody. Back in 2003, the Illinois State Crime Lab matched the Gargiulo DNA collected in Los Angeles to unidentified DNA found on Trisha Picaccio's fingernails. He's obviously a person of interest. I, I can't express what my personal opinions are regarding his guilt or innocence. Jack Blakey is the head of cold case prosecutions for the Cook County State's Attorney. Based on the uh, fingernails, we have a profile of both the victim and Mike Gargiulo. They're telling me they have DNA, it's Michael's. At the time, Trisha's brother was convinced that Cook County had found the smoking gun in his sister's case. But then, inexplicably... They decide not to act on DNA evidence. The evidence just hasn't been there. I wish we could bring closure to her family tomorrow. 
Blakey says no arrest was made because the DNA by itself is not enough to prove Gargiulo was present when Trisha was murdered. DNA can be left by either a defensive wound or it can be left by casual contact. He was a friend of the family at the time, or at least uh, was present at the house on multiple occasions. And that appears to be the biggest obstacle in charging Michael Gargiulo with the murder of Tricia Picaccio. The state's attorney's office claims that because the crime lab only used a single swab to collect all the DNA from Tricia's fingernails, it is impossible to determine where that DNA came from, on top of the fingernail or underneath it. And that, they say, is a critical distinction. There certainly is an evidentiary uh, advantage to having a DNA match underneath the fingernails. If the DNA was found under Trisha's nails, it could be argued that it got there as she fought against her attacker. Would it have been better if the swabs had been done a different way? Certainly with the, the science that we have now, we could have taken advantage of that. So a simple but ultimately flawed laboratory procedure appears to have tied the prosecution's hands. We have DNA evidence and the experts cannot testify that it was anything other than casual. It might have been more sinister, but it might be casual as well. Which is exactly what Gargiulo wants investigators to believe about Trisha Picaccio, as he told us from jail. DNA does not prove that someone, somebody committed a crime. DNA just uh, pretty much says that the person was present or could have been present. As for the attacks on the women in California, it seems Gargiulo has only one thing to say. I'm 100% innocent. Gargiulo has spent more than three years in the Los Angeles County Jail awaiting trial. This is a real nightmare that I'm living. In that time, he has had several meetings with a 48 Hours producer to consider the possibility of an on-camera interview. All of those meetings were recorded by the jail. My truth is being 100% innocent, being wrongfully charged. Gargiulo would not discuss any of the charges against him, but it's clear from these recordings given to us by authorities that he is convinced jail is the last place he belongs. Like everything good about me and the fair person that I am and everything. This program contains graphic material, including offensive language. Viewer discretion is advised. It's, it's not even out there, this is wrong. In 30 years of being in law enforcement, have you ever dealt with someone like this? No. He's pretty remarkable. I I've met some sick puppies and some unique people and some brilliant people. I've never met anybody quite like Mike Gargiulo. While the investigators in California are sure they've got their man, there is still one troubling question that concerns them greatly. Do you think there are other victims out there? I think there's a very real chance. We've got evidence, some statements um, from Mr. Gargiulo and from other people that indicate that 10 might be, 10 might be the magic number. We know that Michael Gargiulo traveled a little bit uh, between Illinois and California. We would certainly love to hear from investigators or other witnesses, people that have knowledge that maybe knew him or ran in him at some point. <laughs> 
In the meantime, with Gargiulo finally behind bars, Los Angeles investigators will wait for justice to run its course. Now it's up to the jury. What are you hoping for a trial? Conviction. And sentencing? The whole nine yards, whatever the jury finds appropriate. The whole nine yards in this state is the death penalty? Yes, ma'am. But for the Picaccios, that won't be nearly enough. If he's convicted of murder in California, even if he is sentenced to die, is that enough for you? Because no. at least he will have been found guilty and isn't back out on the street? No. I'm happy that the DNA off of my sister is helping these other families. But at the same time, it's not good enough for that to stop there. It's, it's, not, it's not fair to her. This man needs to be held accountable for what he did. Since this story first aired last spring, there has been a remarkable development in the Trisha Picaccio murder investigation. While watching that episode of 48 Hours, a viewer who years earlier had worked with Michael Gargiulo in a Los Angeles nightclub remembered that Gargiulo had once bragged to him and others that he had killed a young woman in Chicago. 48 Hours put that witness, along with another co-worker, in touch with authorities here in the city. And shortly thereafter, a Cook County grand jury finally indicted Michael Gargiulo for Trisha's murder. Late yesterday, we filed a criminal complaint in court charging Michael Gargiulo with first-degree murder in the brutal slaying of Picaccio. It was an announcement the Picaccio family had been waiting 18 years to hear. Certainly welcome news, and yet bittersweet. For me, the witnesses coming forward 248 hours after the show uh, was the first step, and then getting it to the police and having them validate the claim is when we really started to feel a sense of accomplishment. He will eventually be brought back here to Illinois. We are going to continue with this case, um, but it'll be a while before that happens. It doesn't take away the, the pain, but there is some sense of relief. Not closure yet, it's a start. And that's all it is, it's a start. Do you have hope at this point that he will see a day in court here? I wouldn't say hope. I would say I have the tenacity to keep going after him until it does happen. You're not going to give up? I'm not going to give up, no. My daughter is going to get the representation that she, she deserves. deserves. It's not over. It's, it'll never be over for the victims. It'll never be over for the victims' families. The only thing that's over is he's off the streets and young women can sleep a little better at night. If Gargiulo receives the death penalty in California, is it still necessary to bring him to trial in Illinois? Chat now on Facebook and Twitter. This is definitely a life and death struggle. This is a man's life who's on the line. They got their man. They did not do their job. 
Firefighters found six bodies. Oh my God, what happened here? Manipulating witnesses, fabricating evidence. Does this man get to live? Does this man get to die? We're Texas, we like to execute people. On television, online, on the go, and now on iPad, CBS News. Last spring, we reported on the 1993 murder of a young woman named Trisha Picaccio. Now, because of that broadcast, we can report there has finally been a breakthrough for a family that has been waiting nearly two decades for justice. The murder happened here in the middle of the night. Someone jumped out of the bushes and stabbed 18-year-old Trisha Picaccio to death. I was the one who found her. I woke up and I had a cup of coffee and I was going out to my van. And I just happened to see two little tennis shoes sticking up by the side door. And when I saw it was her, I dropped the coffee cup. I remember just waking up to this blood-curling scream of my father. Just the second I heard it, I knew something was very badly wrong. I was a first responder to the scene back on 1993. I walked to the south side of the home, and that's where I saw the victim lying on the ground near the garage. She had a lot of blood on her shirt or her blouse. At that time, I was guessing she was stabbed numerous times. I died right then and there. My daughter, Trisha was murdered when she was 18 years old. Trisha was an amazing girl. Was probably one of the most energetic and happy people I've ever seen. She loved everybody and everything. She trusted everybody. She had a great attitude about everything. And she knew what she wanted out of life. Everybody was beside themselves, like, who? And, and why would anybody do something like this? The Cook County Sheriff did their investigation. They had approximately 15 suspects they were looking at early on. A friend of the victim's two brothers was our immediate suspect. Mike Gargiulo is a very powerful young man, and he flat refused to cooperate with the police. The state's attorney's office, they wanted more than we had at that time. Mike Gargiulo went to California to get out of the scrutiny that had been focused on him here in Illinois. Hollywood Hills, 2001. A 22-year-old believed to be actor Ashton Kutcher's girlfriend is stabbed to death. They were going to be hanging out, going to a Grammy party. The injuries that she suffered were horrific. Probably one of the worst I've seen. 2005, a 32-year-old woman is stabbed in her home. There was slashing and cutting. There were multiple stab wounds, not just a couple. Santa Monica, April 2008. A young woman is woken up by a man attacking her with a knife. She was stabbed multiple times in her chest and shoulder and, and right arm. Trisha greatly resembled uh, the other victims here in California. They were all young, they were all attractive, they were all female. I feel with what we know today between Illinois and California, Michael Gargiulo may be a serial killer. A boy next door. Tonight's 48 Hours Mystery.
the mystery continues in 90 seconds. Hollywood, 2001. Eight years and thousands of miles from the scene of Trisha Picaccio's murder. Its bright lights have always attracted the young and the beautiful. And 22-year-old Ashley Ellerin was no exception. For this small-town girl from Northern California, life in Hollywood was a whirlwind of work, friends, and fun. She was amazing. Amazing. She liked to have fun? Absolutely. She liked to have fun. We had a lot of fun. At the center of Ashley's world was a core group of close friends. Justin Peterson, Jennifer DeSisto, and Chris Duran. She was just beautiful and, and fun and spontaneous. Really the connection between this big group of friends was kind of partying and having a great time. Very free-spirited lifestyle. Yeah. Right. They were young. They were young. Ashley spent her days as a student at the Los Angeles Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. And what were her goals and dreams at that point in her life? I think it was basically, you know, to get into the fashion industry. But out at night with her friends, Ashley found herself catching the attention of some of Hollywood's rising young stars including a 23-year-old Ashton Kutcher. We had hung out with him a couple of times. They had, like, you know, maybe gone out on a couple of dates or whatever. In Hollywood, it's Hollywood. Interacting with celebrities, that is how it is. I mean, they live here. So when Kutcher asked Ashley out for the night of February 21st, 2001, no one thought much of it. I knew they were going to be hanging out, going to a Grammy party. It was Grammy night. Right? Yeah, it was right. Grammy night. He was just, I thought, picking her up to take her. Yeah, he was just he was picking her up that to take her to a party. Kutcher arrived around 10.45 that night, but Ashley never answered her door. According to police interviews, before he left, Kutcher looked in the windows and saw what he thought was spilled wine on the floor. As it turned out, it wasn't wine at all. The body of 22-year-old Ashley Lauren Ellerin was found by her roommate early Thursday morning. Police say the stabbing happened Wednesday night. I remember it like it was yesterday. I entered the house. There was two steps to the left here and Ashley was laying across the two stairs. Absolutely uh, blue and covered in blood. A sense of trauma just came over me. I thought maybe the person was still there and I kind of ran out. Ended up getting to the car and calling from my cell phone, 911. It still traumatizes me to this day. Ashley Ellerin was just everybody's daughter. Living life and having fun. She winds up meeting somebody who's the wrong person and lost her life over it. Do you want to take a ride with me uh, out to the scene? Los Angeles Police Department homicide detective Tom Small, working out of the Hollywood division, was one of the first on the scene that morning. This is 1911 Pinehurst Road, and this is Ashley Ellerin's uh, former residence. Even now, 10 years later, 
Detective Small has no trouble remembering what he found inside that house. I observed quite a large amount of blood and not too short uh, distance was Ashley's body. A lot of anger, a lot of rage. Somebody had isolated Ashley Ellerin, the, the killer, and was very, very angry when he did it. It just was a very bad scene. Probably, the, probably one of the worst I've seen. But what surprised the seasoned investigator even more was what he didn't see. Any evidence that would point to a killer. You know, we were just looking for any type of direction or clues that would uh, to lead to a suspect. It was Ashley's friends that gave detectives that first and only clue, pointing them to a young man Ashley had met in the neighborhood months earlier. The information we have is that he introduced himself as a heating and air guy. Ultimately uh, got some additional information. I was able to come up with some photos and, and identify him as Michael Thomas Gargiulo. We had heater problems, so he came in, you know, we sat there, we looked at the heater, and he started telling us all the crazy stories that, you know, he was a um, professional boxer. In fact, Michael Gargiulo did have a short career as an amateur boxer. But when he first arrived in Hollywood in 1998, like countless others, he had a different dream in mind. Your name? Mike Gargiulo. This was in 1999. I was a film student at USC. Los Angeles filmmaker Temple Brown gave Gargiulo a small role as a boxer in his graduate thesis film. I think he was perfect for that part. He looked it and he performed it very well. Gargiulo fit the role of a boxer to a T. But when the camera stopped, there was something odd about him. I think he was sort of withdrawn, maybe somewhat shy even. Just kind of very quiet and I would say kind of kept to himself, didn't really talk a whole lot. And it was that same manner that began to give Ashley and her friends pause as well. Did he ever ask her out on a date? Not that I remember I her ever saying. I never made a play for her? Or... No. It doesn't seem like he was obsessed with her in a, a sexual way, like I want right. you. He was just right. obsessed with a maybe a lifestyle or her being... Fixated? Mm -hmm. Just fixated. There was one occasion when he was observed sitting in a vehicle. And it was early in the morning. The engine was running and he was just looking in the direction of Ashley's house, just sitting there. I was walking and then found him sitting in his car at the end of the street with the motor running. And I went in and I, I just remember I keep calling Ashley, going, where did you find this guy? This is very odd. Why is this guy in front of our house at 2, 3 in the morning? Justin confronted him the next day when Gargiulo dropped by for a visit. I said, what the hell were you doing in front of my house at 2, 3 in the morning? He started to go on about how the fact that he couldn't go home last night because the FBI was waiting for him at his home to collect DNA samples from Chicago. Some murder, his best friend's girlfriend was murdered or whatever. And I said, well, what, what do you have to hide? He uh, immediately put his leg up on the couch and started to pull out a knife that was like, you know, a strap to his ankle here. And what are you thinking? This guy's telling you that, that he might point, be involved with the at murder. At that point, I, I rushed him out of the house. Dude, get out of my house. 
I don't want to have anything to do with you. Ashley and her friends dismissed Gargiulo's story as an unlikely fantasy. But what no one realized at the time, it was true. Besides being an aspiring actor, a boxer and a repairman, Michael Gargiulo was also the prime suspect in the investigation of the murder of Trisha Picaccio. You believe Michael Gargiulo killed your sister? Absolutely. I just remember just waking up to this blood-curling scream of my father. And it was, Doug, call 911, Doug, call 911. It happened over 18 years ago. But to this day, Doug Picaccio is still haunted by the moment he found out his sister Tricia had been savagely murdered. I don't really want to describe the details of, of what I saw. I have nightmares about it all the time. Years later, while investigating Ashley Ellerin's murder, California detectives were surprised to learn their number one suspect, Michael Gargiulo, was closely connected to another murder back in his hometown of Glenview, Illinois. I think that Trisha was the first. Like any high school girl, she was boy crazy. We all were. <laughs> we talk about boys for hours. We had a wonderful time in high school. Karen Jones will never forget the last time she was with Trisha. It was an unusually cool and foggy August night, Friday the 13th, 1993. That night, a whole group of us got together for a scavenger hunt party, and we all had dinner at a restaurant for one of the final parties of the summer before we all went off to college. Trisha got home sometime after 1 a.m. With keys in hand, she went to the side of the house to let herself in. She never made it. The next morning, Trisha's father, Rick, was going out to his van. I tried to revive her. That is the worst feeling in your life, when you can't do nothing to somebody you love. Trisha's mother, Diane, was at work. And I just left work and jumped in the car and came home, and I don't remember anything else. She had a lot of blood on her shirt or her blouse. Ray Saleyevich was the first uniformed police officer on the scene. I was guessing she was stabbed numerous times. When I heard a lady screaming, and I turned and looked because I was still in the front yard, and the mother is running towards Trish. And I basically tackled her, and I didn't want her to see Trish like this and remember her daughter like that. Homicide detectives from Cook County Sheriff's Department quickly took over the crime scene. The crime scene back then, I thought it could have been handled a lot better, taped off more. You think there were mistakes made that day? Yes. That hindered the investigation? I think the crime scene should have been handled a lot better, more secured, yes. While investigators were trying to secure the scene, one young neighbor was paying close attention. 17-year-old Mike Gargiulo. I called him. I'm like, hey, what's going on? He's like, I know it's crazy. He goes, yeah, I went over there. He goes, you couldn't miss all the sirens and everything, all the commotion. Scott Olson was childhood friends with Gargiulo. What was Mike's reaction to all this? Well, it was equal to mine. Just shock, complete and total shock. It seemed totally appropriate to you at the Absolutely. time. Absolutely. I met Mike through Doug Picasso. Mm -hmm. He grew up in their house. He ate at their dinner table. 
Just two days before her murder, Olsen and Gargiulo had given Trisha a ride to her boyfriend's house. We just drove her. She wasn't in the car very long. She got out, and that was the last time I guess we saw her. And did they have any kind of relationship? The same as it was with me. You're just like, my little brother's you're friend? You're my little brother's friend. I don't have to talk to you. Yes. Scott Olson says there were two sides to Michael Gargiulo. One side was an awkward, insecure teen. The other side of Mike was he had what I call a crazy switch, where if he really wanted something and he was going to get it one way or another, and he flipped the switch. All emotions, gone. Yet nothing about Gargiulo gave the Picaccios cause for suspicion. I knew him to be very quiet, one of the guys that were in the back. He was never loud or boisterous whatsoever. You never saw him display any aggressive or uh, physical no. violent behavior? No, I no. can't say that. Was he friends with Trisha? No. 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 But starting about a year after Trisha's death, Gargiulo began drawing attention to himself with some strange behavior. It first started with he the flower. flower. He brought Diane flowers. I'm like, why is Michael bringing us? It was live greenery. At Easter time, he brought us a lily. He brought us a dinner certificate to a restaurant, and then he even brought him a shirt. So it's like, wait a minute, nobody else was giving gifts. Dinner, and I said to him, why thing. is Michael we, we, giving us all of this stuff? And, and we people, were telling the, the detectives at the time what was going on. It was enough for Cook County Sheriff's detectives Jack Reed and Mark Baldwin to take a closer look at Michael Gargiulo. One of the psychologists that was talking to us says he's trying to expiate his sin. He's trying to atone for his crime with the presence that he was giving the family. The detectives discovered Gargiulo had a criminal record, having once been arrested for theft. Then Doug Picaccio told them about a curious conversation he once had with Mike. And he looked at me and he said, if you knew who did this, would you kill them or could you kill them? I said, well, what do you think? Ask any father, any brother, anybody, I think you know the answer. The police called me later on, Detective Jack Reed, and said, do you realize that Michael Gargiulo called us and told us that you threatened him? He knew how to play the system, okay? He knew the heat was on. And it seems that Gargiulo wasn't shy about pointing the finger at his friends. When we were finally able to compel Mike Gargiulo to talk to us, he was aware that we had shown some interest in one of his good friends, Eric Agassim. She was the nicest girl I've ever known. Eric Agassim was another kid from the neighborhood and a close friend of Gargiulo and Doug Picaccio. But not so close that Gargiulo wouldn't give him up to the detectives. He attempted at that time to lay all the suspicion on his doorstep by telling us that the morning after the murder, Eric came to his home and asked him to come along so he could hide something, a gym bag. This program contains graphic material, including offensive language. Viewer discretion is advised.